Good afternoon, and this is The Weekly. Every Tuesday at noon, our podcast strips to inform you on the information of the world. As always, I'm your host, Stuart Christensen, and today we will resume our interview with Dr. Stephen Thomas. Please enjoy. Mm-hmm. So, um, with vaccines, um, we've heard many different um We've heard many different promises from different doctors on when vaccines are going to be ready. I've heard 18 months. I've heard um, as soon as um, early 2021. Um, and we've, we've always been talking about this being like the, the fastest record-breaking um, vaccine production um, to date. And that's that's probably gotten a lot of people worried about if this vaccine is going to be helpful. Um, can you speak to that? Well, I've been involved in making vaccines long enough to know that I would never make any prom- you know, never make any promises <laughs> about them um, in terms of uh, their development timelines. You know, it just for context to this point in time it's taken on average about 10 years to make a vaccine and, you know, it's take about a billion to a billion and a half dollars. And so, um, you know, I think the fastest, uh, one of the most recent examples of a vaccine that, you know, we've been able to produce, you know, or develop quickly, um, is probably the Ebola, the Ebola vaccine, but there are nuances to that story as well, which, you know, that took five years. Um, but there are nuances to that story as well, which probably mean it, it did take longer than five years if you, you know you count all the activities. So to think that a new disease would pop up in humans, let's call it 2020, and we would have uh, identified sick people, isolated virus from those people, um, figured out the genetic code of the virus, figure out how it infects and hurts people, and then come up with vaccine prototypes, uh, and then manufacture lots and lots of doses, and then begin clinical trials and potentially license it by the end of that same year. That really is, um, you know, unprecedented, right? That, That really has not happened at the type of scale that it has happened. Um, is it, is it even, you know, uh, feasible? Is it even possible that this could occur? Well, it is for a couple reasons. One, um, we really didn't start from zero. So if you look at, you know, the main candidates that are out there in phase three testing, so the Pfizer candidate, which is what we're testing at my organization, um, Moderna, Novavax, um, AstraZeneca with Oxford, um, you know, all these different candidates. These are, these are platform technologies, right? So uh, these are, um, what that means is you create, you create a, uh, a platform on which you can plug and play different types of antigens that belong to different pathogens. So you can think of it as like a car, right? So the platform is the car um, and the passenger would be the antigen. So these platforms, they had 
Ebola as um, a passenger. And then they could pull that out and they could put MERS-CoV as the passenger. And then they could pull that out and now they're putting SARS-CoV-2 or COVID as the passenger. Hmm. So these platforms have been around and have been in other pe- have been in people already, but for different diseases. So then COVID comes along and they say, well, maybe the platform can work for COVID. So we really didn't start from zero um, in terms of a lot of these vaccine development um, uh, efforts. That's number one. Number two, you know, typically um, the finances are is one of the. Uh, you know, one of the huge obstacles that developers have in trying to move things quickly because, you know, it's a high risk endeavor just at baseline. And so you're talking about for-profit companies that have to make decisions about how much money they're going to put into a new high risk initiative. Um, And, you know, they need to have some, they need to have some balance there, right? Well, that's been kind of taken off the table a little bit for some of these companies because the federal government, the taxpayer, um, is infusing billions and billions of dollars into these efforts. So now that's no longer an issue. Um, and then the third thing is that because that money is so free-flowing right now, um, these companies can do a lot of things in parallel that they have uh, typically had to do sequentially. Again, just from a risk mitigation and financial resource perspective. Um, and, and so... Uh, you know, that, that's another, that's another thing. Now, what I would say is that I personally have not seen anything um, or read anything or have, you know, I'm not, or I'm in the know about things um, that lead me to believe that safety is being compromised. And I have seen nothing that leads me to believe that either the FDA or these independent ethical review committees um, have changed their standard for safety in any way. So I, I mean, it just, it makes sense that people would say, wait a second, normally it takes 10 years. Now it's taking a year. Mm. Some corner has to have been cut and we need to, you know, safety is probably a a corner that they cut. I'm not seeing that. I'm, I'm really not, uh, and I'm participating, right? And so I'm I'm not seeing where that has been the issue. What I see is the issue is the one that I that I mentioned. We had a head start. They infused a lot of money. They're doing things in parallel. Um, they're taking some financial risk, but I don't see them taking safety risk. Hmm. I have kind of a follow up question. Um, kind of going back to what you're saying about plugging in different diseases to see if they work with the vaccine. How much tweaking is required to the vaccine to like once you plug in SARS-CoV-2 into um, one of these pre-existing vaccines, do you need to tweak that vaccine in any way to see if it works on the coronavirus, or um, will it just work on its own? Uh, no, there's lots of t- there's lots of tweaking. Um, it's very much like uh, it's very much like baking, you know. And that uh, so just one example, so that that spike protein that we talked about, right? It's a very complex structure. And there are many different components to that protein. So you have to make a decision, well, am I going to include the entire protein or am I just going to include a couple sections of that protein? So that's one thing you have to consider. The other thing you have to consider is, well, 
how much pro, how much of this you know what's the dose that I want to give somebody and how many doses are they going to need and you know do I have to can I just give the 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 antigen can I so for example the spike protein can I just give that protein or do I need to use something to boost the immune system a little bit we call that an adjuvant hmm. um, and then you have to say well how am I going to deliver it am I going to you know am I going to put it in the muscle am I going to put it in the subcutaneous you know fat am I going to put it just under the skin am I going to use a needle am I going to use some kind of device am I, I mean there's just so many different nuances um and it all depends upon you know the the type of pathogen that you're talking about how it infects people how it makes people sick um yeah so it's it's very much like you know cooking and a pinch of this a dash of that don't cook it too long don't cook it too short don't cook it at too high a temperature uh these these sorts of things so there's 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 lots of nuances. Hmm. All right. So now we're now we're also talking about the um, like the release the release of the vaccine. If um you you said that the corners are not being cut by the FDA. Um, and um we have Operation Warp Speed, right? Um, from the Trump administration. Do you think politics have affected the release speed of the vaccine in any way, or do you think it's just trying to get this vaccine out as fast as we can. So, I mean, the, well, I, I don't know about politics. Uh, I mean, the, the government obviously has played, has played, has made a decision to play a very big role in um supporting the development of multiple vaccine candidates uh, for COVID. And they're doing this. Um, and, you know, in, again, there, are, there is existing and enduring infrastructure within the federal government for developing vaccines and supporting uh, um, vaccination, right? So groups like the NIH are constantly working on different vaccines for different diseases and the institutions that they fund, um, the Department of Defense, um, groups like BARDA and the Assistant you know, Secretary for Preparedness and Response or ASPR. Um, so there's all these different groups that are always working on national bio-preparedness and bio-defense. You know, bio and I don't mean bio-defense in terms of... Um, you know, just nefarious, you know, nefar you know, situations where someone's trying to use a biologic weapon or things of, of that nature. I just mean that in a whole holistic sort of way. Um, so that always exists. Now, what's happening, though, with Operation Warp Speed is that they've turned the dial way, way up, meaning, again, this huge infusion of money, um, putting big, uh, you know, whole of government and, you know, public-private partnership cooperations in place. Um, you know, it, it's a much bigger, it's a, it, it's, uh, government has taken a much um, more involved role uh, in, in the process. But, you know, not every 
not every one of those developers has agreed to sign on. Um, you know, uh, as I wrote about in my, you know, my Forbes piece, the, the, so the, you know, chief business officer for Pfizer basically said, well, we're not interested in taking U S government money, mm -hmm. uh, to support development because we don't want to be involved in the, you know, bureaucracy of, of having to make decisions about how we spend that, you know, you know, money. Um, so, so I don't know if it's, I wouldn't say it's, I wouldn't say politics. I would just say, I would, but I would definitely say government. Okay. Um, so let's, let's go to about like six months or eight months or 12 months from today. And, um, we have a vaccine. How will the, how might the world look different now that we have a vaccine? Is it, will we, will we still be, um, maintaining some form of um some form of measures um for um slowing the spread for people who don't have the vaccine or will we be at a point where we're able to live our normal life so this question brings up you know what i think is an essential point that you know vaccines don't vaccines don't save people right vaccines don't protect people it's vaccination which protects and saves people right so yeah. just just the fact that you can develop a vaccine and that the fda you know you can test it and the fda says yep it's safe and effective that's part of the that's part of the task the other part of the task is manufacturing um you know hundreds of millions or globally billions of vaccine doses and getting them to places where they can vaccinate people and then having people, uh, you know, have access to those vaccines and lining up to get them. Um, and, and, you know, it's, you can't talk about this without talking about people who, um, you know, the high rates of vaccine hesitancy within the United States and then the sort of the fringe anti-vaccine uh, mm. people, which really aren't, anti-vaccine they're anti-authority right they're anti-establishment basically because uh, they conflate all sorts of issues around vaccination so if we assume that people are going to take the vaccine and that there is enough vaccine and you know the infrastructure is in place to deploy and administer vaccination um you know i think uh again i won't i you know i don't make any promises obviously I'm, but i think that you know, by the second quarter of calendar year 2021, we could potentially have a vaccine that has demonstrated itself to be safe and effective and vaccine doses could start to be rolled out at least, um, you know, in the United States. I think, I think promising things before that timeline, um, I'm not sure what would support that uh those promises but mm. what kind of information people have that that think that that could happen but but assuming that um widespread vaccination is occurring um i still think that the quick the absolute quickest way to uh nationally and globally um turn this curve uh and have it inflect uh, very dramatically downward and to get back to some semblance of um, 
whatever the new normal is going to look like uh, in many aspects. Uh, I think it's a combination of vaccines, and I think it's a combination of strict application of public health interventions, which would be um, continued uh, um, not having mass gatherings, making sure people continue to wear masks when there needs to be gatherings, um, continuing to have people wash their hands, not touch their faces, get vaccinated against influenza, um, and, uh, and those sorts of things. And I think, you know, not come to school or work if you're sick, mm-hmm. uh, and then continued aggressive um, diagnosing infections, testing the contacts of those infections, and enforcing isolation and quarantine uh, rules. So I th- and I think if you do those two things together, mm-hmm. um, public health intervention interventions plus widespread vaccination, that the the curve could be very very quickly um, directed downward, and in a matter of months, um, the picture could look very very different than you know than it does uh, than it does now because if you know if Nobody. I mean, think about it. Think about how bad um, it was in New York City. Right. Right. So 11 million people basically on lockdown um, and uh, huge death toll and, and huge number of sick people and everything else. And still only about 20 percent of New York City was infected, which means 80 percent of people were not infected. <laughs> you know, so. Um, in the absence of doing those things, this would go on um, for a long time, for mm-hmm. a really long time, uh, and it, it would, uh, you know, it would result in, and, and you know, the secondary and tertiary effects of this, right? Because it's not just uh, it's not just COVID infecting somebody and that person getting sick and going to the hospital and ending up in the intensive care unit and potentially you know, being there for three, four weeks and, and or dying. Um, it's the effects on educating our population, uh, you know, and kids going to school. It's, uh, it's the effect on, you know, businesses that can't open um, and people going out of business. And it's, uh, you know, unemployment at 15 plus percent. And it's, you know, it's all these, it's all these things. It's everything connected. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so that's so I, I see us potentially. I mean, in a year, we could be in a great place, but it's going to take uh, it's going to take some clarity and clear thinking on people's parts to uh, and leadership um, to uh, to get people to do the types of things they need to do to get us there. That is really good to hear, Doctor Thomas. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask my last question. So we've we've seen um, what can happen when states open a bit too fast um, with Texas and Florida. Now they have more cases than New York did. Um, So in the fall, when people are going back to school and um, businesses are starting to reopen, is it, should should we expect um, some sort of, um, some sort of spike or, if, if, if we're, if we're not vigilant or, um, should we, should we just expect some sort of, um, continuation of what we're having now? So I think, 
I mean, I think it would be naive to think that when people go back to, to school that we will not see infections in school, right? I mean, um, we've seen this already, right? I mean, we've, there have been schools that have opened uh, and we've already seen, uh, you know, one school in Indiana was open for one day and they had, <laughs> they had somebody uh, infected who had exposed, who, you know, exposed a number of people. Hmm. Um, but, but I think, you know, just kind of taking a step, I guess, two steps back. So um, I think part of the new, not to be cliche, but I think part of the new normal is ha- has to be new thinking. Okay. And the new thinking is going to be, um, which I've been saying from the beginning, do not think for a second that we're going to live through this thing. Like, like COVID is somehow going to end or disappear or go away. Mm-hmm. It is not. Um, and uh, in the near term, anyway, it's not going away. So don't think that we're going to live through this event. Right? We're going to have to learn to live with these types of, with these types of events, right? And this is the one that's on our plate you know, right now. So then that means that you're going to have to make decisions about risk and benefit and, uh, about all sorts of things, right? Risk benefit of putting 80,000 people into a football stadium and the risk benefit of bringing people to school for in-person learn education and socialization, um, Right. Those are different things and they require different kind of thought processes. Um, I personally believe that the uh, I believe that the risk of not educating our population from, you know, pre-K through graduate education or continuing adult education, et cetera, just education. um, I believe that that risk is substantial. And I think that if we say, well, we're just not going to do it until this thing is over. Um, I think the risks of that to the nation are, uh, huge. And, uh, and I would say that and that's not the place to start. I think the place to start is we must do this. We have to do this. How can we do this? Um, how can we mitigate risk so that the risk benefit um, you know, falls on, uh, on the benefit, uh, benefit side of things. And that requires, I mean, even though we're in a pandemic, right. And there's not many places on the planet. I don't think Antarctica has had a case yet, but other than that, I think basically every, you know, continent, um, uh, in most countries on the planet have had had cases of COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I, but so even though that's this kind of global phenomenon, infectious diseases really are also a local phenomenon, right? So uh, the Northeast had their time and it was really bad and the rest of the country didn't and they didn't understand what the big deal was. And now, uh, you know, now the Northeast is in a much different spot. You know, where I live in central New York, we're at the lowest case count and the lowest test percent, you know, positive rate we've had since since March. And so when I look at, when I look at how are we going to, you know, how are we going to educate people here? That's different than how people in uh, Georgia and the Carolinas and Florida and 
Texas and California, it's different than the types of decisions that they, you know, that they have to, uh, that they have to make. Um, but again, it's, it's, it's complex, but it's also relatively simple in a way in that um, if, if people were to strictly adhere to uh, these public health interventions, which we have talked about, mm-hmm. which is, you know, in school, try to avoid high, you know, if you can avoid high density gatherings, you do that. Everyone should be universally masks. So everyone should be wearing masks unless they're eating or drinking. And if they're eating or drinking, then it should be done in an environment and in a setup where there can be physical distancing. Um, sports, you know, things where there's going to be, you know, 30, 40 people having contact every 10 seconds, 15 seconds. That's different risk than cross country, you know, running cross country or playing tennis or playing golf or swimming. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, everyone needs to wash their hands. People need to be screened before they come to, to school. Uh, or if it's your, you know, if it's your teacher or some uh, kind of administrator before you come to work, um, we should have ample testing available so that when somebody does get sick or exhibit symptoms, they can be tested and a result can be learned very quickly such that all the contacts can be tested and then people can be quarantined while you wait for the tests so that you can take these little fires, which are absolutely going to erupt and they can be extinguished as little fires versus, you know, little fires coalescing into a big fire that cannot be, um, you know, cannot be extinguished. So, you know, so it requires, it's not just the educational institution in isolation. It's, that institution within a community that has a department of health, uh, it has, you know, hospitals and other healthcare infrastructure, which means there's testing available, you know, it's the whole kind of, of ecosystem, which has to, uh, function together. And then, and then it can occur. Right. And then if there's a vaccine available, then again, we're going to have this discussion about parents who don't want to vaccinate their kids Mm. and what kind of decisions people are going to, you know, uh, to make about that. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me uh, this morning. Um, it was, it was great to have you here. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Have a wonderful summer. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the weekly this afternoon. We greatly appreciate it. Please take the time to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts and follow our Instagram channel at Connected Radio 20 for updates on episodes and interviews. Additionally, please take the time to listen to our sister podcast, Unknowns, which we'll be releasing on Thursday. Thanks again for listening. As always, I'm your host, Stuart Christensen. See you back here next Tuesday.